Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. Welcome everyone. Today on One Broke a Mom, I actually have Dr. Alexandra Katahakis, who is a marriage family therapist, a certified sex addiction therapist, and the clinical director for the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles. Dr. Katahakis has extensive experience in working with a full spectrum of sexuality from sexual addiction to sex therapy, as well as problems related to desire, dysfunction for individuals and for couples. And she has successfully facilitated the recovery of many sexually addicted individuals and assisted many couples in revitalizing their sex lives. So welcome, Dr. Katahakis. Thank you, Ami. Well, and so I didn't mean to get everybody excited, um, but we're not actually going to talk about a lot of sex on this episode here. Um, I had been doing some research into the area of love addiction and an article that Dr. Katahakis had written kind of compelled me to reach out to her. Um, love addiction is something that can be linked with codependent relationships. It can be something that um, many of us may have encountered, experienced, or have known somebody that's been in this state and not really understood that there are some nuances to it that um, when we talk about love, we don't think of it as an unhealthy thing, but in many times we might not actually be talking about love at all. So Alex, can you first, because again, like I tell everybody, I'm not the expert in this topic here. I would love for you to talk about what love addiction actually is. Well, that's a really big question, obviously, because, you know, this notion of love and falling in love is one of the most delicious experiences we have as human beings from the time we're children and we fall in love with our first puppy to adolescence with, you know, another person, um, well into adulthood and over time. So to pathologize love is really kind of crummy, unfortunately. (laughs) But the word addiction means a strong predilection for something. So a strong preference for something that keeps pulling us back over and over again. And when love is misused like anything, drugs, alcohol, sex, chocolate cake, you name it, it can become problematic for some people. So love addiction in adults is really, um, as you, you mentioned something about codependence, it's really sort of formed and forged in childhood, but has us um, being in a relationship with another person that isn't actually real. It's a fantasy idea that we have about who we think they are, Um, and that we want them, and we don't stop and look at what's actually going on and what the signs and signals are in front of us that tell us whether that person is available or not. Right. So people, people who are love addicts are often in, in a love fantasy 
uh, with another person, but they don't really know the person and they might even be living with them. Um, mostly because they don't want to know them. They don't want to be in the reality of, you know, the painful grappling we have to go through to be in a close and intimate relationship. They just want to stoke the fantasy of, you know, my prince or princess and that life is just rosy and good. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't just stumble on the topic because I was looking for something to discuss on the show. Um, love addiction has been something that's been of interest to me. I, I never had a word for it, but I do know that um, for myself, and you said this starts in childhood, you know, I had the privilege of being able to read through several of my journals that I had collected and started when I was like 11 years old and continued till I was about 15. Mm. And one of the things that I noticed in there for me was I had a infatuation which I think is a pretty accurate word to use with um, a singer songwriter of the time. I'm 47 years old. So, Um, and I kept saying at the end of all my journal entries that I wanted to be in a relationship and be loved. And what I found interesting was that I would say it was because I felt loved by my family. And I don't think now at this age that I actually did feel loved by my family. And this whole drive to be coupled with somebody was really, really pretty strong for me. Talk about when a child or maybe an adolescent actually starts to show signs that maybe they are, they have some sort of a love addiction. I, you know, cause I say, when I look at my journals, I wish somebody adult had been paying attention. They might've yeah. seen exactly how lonely I was because it was, it was, it was unsettling to be the adult version of me reading these things going, wow, like I was starved, you know? Yeah, right. And that's the thing I love what you said is that, you know, many of us felt like we knew we were loved because we had uh, food, clothing, shelter, and, uh, you know, people paying the electric bills and everything seemed okay. But what it really takes to connect with the child, that kind of close in stewarding, which isn't helicoptering either, but um, really knowing the child and telling them explicitly that you love them, touching them, holding them, spending time with them is what we need to grow into security in uh, adulthood. And with parents being so busy with work and so much screen time, it's like we are these one-person systems living in a family system. And that child can feel very lonely, even though there are siblings and parents around, because nobody knows their inner life. Mm -hmm. And so... It's tricky because I think everybody had a poster, at least of our generation, of some hot, you know, rock and roll singer that we were in love with. And Mm -hmm. I think that's part of a normal adolescence. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem is, though, when it's accompanied by this deep loneliness um, and the obsession and the fantasy is that someday somebody's going to come get me. Uh, Because all love addicts have this rescue fantasy that somebody's going to want me, I'm going to fall in love Cinderella style, and then all my troubles and pain and emptiness will be over. Um, And Pia Melody states clearly that when a child is abandoned by the opposite sex parent, then they will be love addicted to that um, gender. And it doesn't matter whether you're gay or straight. I mean, if a, a gay male is abandoned by his father, he'll be love addicted to males. Wow, um, and like likewise with straight females, um, and this abandonment can be emotional as much as it is literal. The family system definitely dictates a lot of how we turn out because we're such adaptive creatures. 
That's interesting. Yeah. And that's part of my trauma story is definitely that aspect of it. And I never, um, I guess that makes people, or it makes me think of the term daddy issues, right? We always, it's kind of used pretty loosely and and, and almost Mm -hmm. insensitively to describe women that are, you know, pursuing men um, and sometimes older men, you know, I I know for me, it's never been older men. Um, But that is interesting. So if um, like a divorce, let's say, and a parent takes off and you don't ever right. see them again. Okay. Okay. So, um, um, if I, you know, if I'm looking at other, th- you know, like I sit there and I reflect back on myself too. And I, you know, about feeling this again, I didn't have a word for it, love addiction, but it was definitely idolizing the relationship. Um, and so talk about the codependency piece of this, because that is, that is also part of my adult trauma story is codependent relationships and idolization of somebody that doesn't necessarily deserve it. Um, right. Well, I think codependency is a trauma um, reaction to being in a household where the child has to figure out what the adults need in order to feel safe, loved, and taken care of. So it's an adaptive strategy. And codependency, the word comes out of you know the world of drugs and alcohol and family systems, but there's something real about you know when a child has to adapt to uh, caretaking to the adults, that becomes a problem because that's not the way it's supposed to go. Mm-hmm. The adults are supposed to caretake to the children um, and adults complain to each other, not their children. So as that child grows into teenagehood, adulthood, what they know is that in order to feel loved, I have to caretake to the other person, which is different than taking care of. I have to make sure that person gets all their needs before I get my needs met. And that then sort of erases the person and their needs, and they end up being in relationships with people that, you know, are abusive at worst and insensitive at best. Um, and the idealization, the love addiction has to be there in order to stay in that kind of relationship. I have to see you as, um, you know, nice and caring, even though, you know, on occasion you're mean or cruel or uh, even violent with me. Uh, because I need that fantasy in order to stay in the relationship. Right, right. One of the um, terms, serial monogamist, um, mm-hmm. are love addicts always in monogamous relationships, or are, can a love addict express it differently? Well, not always, but generally women. Um, and Charlotte Castle, who wrote a book years ago about women, sex, and addiction, um, she talked about females being sexually codependent. So females will have sex in order to feel love and they'll go from one relationship to another looking for love. Um, and so usually love addicts will get into a relationship with somebody, oftentimes someone who is avoidant, sometimes a sex addict even, um, because they really can't tolerate intimacy any more than the next person can. They just look more like they can uh, because they're so much into the romance and the idealism. Mm -hmm. So they'll generally stay unless there's some kind of crack in the system. Um, And it's in that crack where they um, either find a way to manipulate the relationship back on track or they're in so much pain they get into therapy or they find another person and replace that person. Mm -hmm. And that's the serial monogamy. 
Yeah. Well, I had taken a year off. Um, my last relationship ended and it, it spun me into the state of uh, therapy and self-help and fixing and all kinds of good stuff. So I, you know, while breakups suck, this was the breakup of a lifetime. Like this was the one that changed everything for me. But I had at some point, like immediately after the relationship was over, I did what I think 99% of us do, which is hurry up and get your online dating profile going and, right. and try to move into another relationship. And as the self awareness started to um, kind of creep into my brain, I took a year off from dating. Like I just, smart. yeah, I'm grateful for that. Right. Um, and yeah. I, I looked back and said, gosh, this is the first year since I was 16 years old that I wasn't actually in a relationship with wow. someone. Right. That time off is extraordinarily beneficial so that you can fall deeply in love with yourself. Mm -hmm. Right. And know who you are and what you like and what you don't like and what's not negotiable and what you won't compromise and what you will negotiate so that you can be met by somebody who's standing on their own two feet, who actually values you the way you value you. Mm -hmm. So do you think that anybody that um, does what I did initially that can't, that feels unsettled without being in a relationship, do you, as a therapist, do you have some concern for them in terms of um, their views of love and relationships? Well, it depends on the degree of discomfort. Um, certainly taking a year off as an adult can feel there can be times when it feels lonely, but I think the invitation there is to dive deeply into the loneliness and see what's there mm -hmm. um, and to really make it a time, as I said, for self-reflection and rejuvenation and really becoming intimate with yourself, what you like, what you don't like, um, the things you want to do and find out about and even exploring your own sexuality with yourself mm -hmm. um, so that you know how your body works better. Um, as it's changed over time. So I would be concerned if somebody said, who was single or getting out of a relationship, who said, oh, no, I just couldn't be alone for a year. Um, yeah. I would say, wow, you might really want to challenge yourself and deal with the discomfort of what that feels like um, so that you can build a better self so that when you meet someone, it's actually additive. It's not out of desperation. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think we've all, I mean, I know you as a therapist you have, but you know, my listeners are also not therapists, but we've all seen the friend that just kind of jumps from one to the next to the next and, and feels really insecure without the relationship piece. And I know I've, I, I, I'll admit that it is scary and it felt really, really lonely early on to not have someone else there to soothe me or to give me a purpose you know, soothing them, you know. Um, but I definitely, I'm, I'm with you. Like the time off was just, it's been tremendous. Like, you know, for me, I'm, I'll never be the same person I was again. And I'm so grateful for that, that element right. of it. Um, and that's what brought me to this idea of, of love addiction of, you know, um, I didn't have a drug and alcohol addiction, but I did certainly, I was driven, you know, by the idea of having to have some sort of a relationship around me, you know, that I needed to get something with. And, and I did, I found myself in, in emotionally unavailable relationships. And so um, I think that this, like I said, I think this topic may be much more prevalent around people than maybe they realize. Can you tell me as, you know, some of my listeners are parents and we have our, our kids, adolescents and teenagers, and we're looking at them as teens or adolescents, what could we be seeing that might uh, make us feel like our kids could be kind of getting into that realm of love addiction? Assuming we've got the self-awareness, you know, right. and aren't the cause. <laughs> well, you know, certainly for young children, I, I think if you've got a child who spends inordinate amounts of time alone, 
um, that would be problematic because we shouldn't just be living in fantasy. And while imagination is crucial for children, um, especially zero to 10 years old, imagination is um, important for the growth of the brain and for the health of our um, ability to have abstract thinking and imagine possibility for the future. So I don't want to confuse that. That should be cultivated in children through art and music and play. Um, but that's different than a child who's so isolated that they only live in a fantasy world and they don't actually have real relationships um, because you want them to be socialized with other children. And in teenage years, there's this phenomenon now where um, kids are not dating during high school years anymore. And there was just an article that came out in the Atlantic Monthly called Why Are So Many Young People Not Having Sex Anymore? <laughs> and um, there's an unbelievable lack of socialization uh, and kids in high school and even in college where we're moving towards an increasingly oddly sexless um, society, the way things are looking. So mm. with teenagers, they should be encouraged to actually really date real people um, and go out with them and explore their sexuality in ways that the parents are paying close attention to. So in other words, if you have a son or daughter um, who's dating someone, invite them to bring that person home, get to know them, have them come to dinner, allow them to have an experience of falling in love appropriately and even getting their heart broken so they're prepared for the world of love and loss and um, what it means to grapple in a relationship and licking their wounds afterwards and moving on. Mm-hmm. These are essential developmental tasks. Well, um, and- and that's a good, I mean, you brought up something, I mean, I like it. So first continue, and then I've got this great question I want to ask you. Well, we just don't want our kids having relationships strictly online and via text and not in real time with each other. Mm, I see. That's the main point. Yeah, okay, and that's good. And it's, um, I guess what I wanted to ask then was, you know, I'm a single mother and with two teenagers, and I, I sit here and I wonder what I can be doing to model what it's like to having, again, been a, been a woman who's been in unhealthy codependent relationships now trying to date, you know, there's these camps of don't, don't tell your kids you're dating. Don't, don't let them know what's going on, like hide everything from them. And then to oversharing, which, you know, can be devastating. No, 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 no. And so I'm trying to find a good middle ground in there um, of being able to, in my opinion, be able to model what relationship building you know, should look like and can look like that it's not, you know, it's not always great. Um, do you have some advice for what, how, how a single parent might be able to model well, this piece? I do think in the examples you just gave, less is better than more. Oversharing is awful because that becomes traumatizing and inappropriate in so many ways. But if you have a, if you've got teenage kids and they know that you're starting to date, you have to have really good boundaries. So if they ask you how your date was, you can say, you know, I had a good time or that person wasn't really for me. And that would be the beginning and the end of it. But they should also see that you're actually taking time to get to know someone and that sometimes you go out with somebody and it's kind of a bust Um, or you go out with them and it's really fun, but they don't call back. And these are sort of the struggles of getting into relationship and getting to know people. So you should be honest, but not in, you know, dramatic ways. Like if the guy was really a jerk, you want to tell your girlfriend that, not your daughter mm-hmm. or your son. Or if you had like a really good time and you're super excited, you might want to modulate that a little bit. 
um, because you want to protect them in a way that you know you're the adult on board and that they feel safe and that you're appropriate but you also want them to see your humanity so that you can model that, yeah, you're going to go on dates and sometimes it will be fun and sometimes it'll just be, gosh, I wish I'd stayed home and, you know, in my pajamas and watched TV and ate pizza. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> I feel better about that because I feel like that's the middle road that I've been, you know, that's great. girls all want to like, oh, he's your boyfriend. I'm like, no, boyfriend. No. A long time to get to and, I, and I've that's done right. that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You have to get to know somebody and see if you like them and feel safe and secure with them before he's actually a boyfriend. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you, you know, this is not something that uh, my therapist had told me the other day. She's like, I wish I could give you a chip, like, you know, for sobriety out of codependency because it's a very, very conscious thinking process. Dating is just not as fluid as it used to be. Um, No. There's a a lot of analysis that goes into it now, but I'm okay with that piece of it. Right. Um, well, Coda, I would imagine, does give chips, don't they? Yeah, they do. Okay. <laughs> they do. <laughs> um, and I actually, I have the Coda book on my, uh, my therapist had handed to me. She goes, I don't think you need to go there. But she goes, you might read this. It'll be some good stuff out of there. And it sure. actually has been. Um, so let's talk about the root causes then of love addiction. Um, because I've got, my listeners are, are, you know, some of them have zero children. And so they're listening because they just want to understand what influences childhood trauma and adversity and neglect may have had on, on what they struggle with today. And then some of us are parents. And if we are identifying our own deficiencies, I, I want them to, and all of us to understand how to not accidentally recreate them, you know, in our kids. So, um, where where does love addiction erupt from generally and what kind of a household and what kind of an experience? Well, I think, um, as I was saying before, it's generally a breach with the opposite sex or same-sex parent if the child is gay or lesbian. Um, and that means that they are abandoned by a parent. And when a child feels abandoned, they're going to seek that love and attention from that uh, gender person, whatever their sexual orientation is. Um, And so that's the thing that people want to be mindful of, that even parents that are insensitive, they don't have to be violent or, um, you know, abandoning their kids and that they get divorced and never see them again. It can be in the confines of a household where the child feels unseen and unheard by that parent Um, In other words, the parent doesn't seem interested in them at all. So getting to know your child as they shift and change and grow is crucial to modeling and developing the capacity for intimacy. Hmm. So, so is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you that that's not at all what I thought where love addiction came from. I mean, so this is, I love my show because I learn something all the time. Um, and, and as I'm sitting here listening to I my biological dad did abandon me. I mean, just flat out. I still don't talk to him. Haven't seen him. Still not interested. I mean, you know, right. I'm 47. So I'm like, whoa, that. Yeah, that's a huge loss, enormous loss, hmm. because we know who we are by way of our parents. And you know, I watch healthy parenting today, where you know fathers actually get to know their daughters in a non-sexual, totally appropriate way where they, you know, talk to them and ask them how they're doing and they do father-daughter things together. So that female is having the experience of herself through a male and she's seeing what a, quote, good man is, somebody who uh, respects her, who protects her, um, who also laughs with her and um, she can come to without being exploited. I mean, what a great example of the kind of man you would want to marry. 
mm-hmm. um, or partner with in some way. And likewise with women and their sons. Um, and, you know, we, uh, it's essential that women bring their sons uh, to fruition in a certain way. But at some point when they start to reach adolescence, that they turn the child rearing over to their, their male partners at that point, mm-hmm. uh, because boys and girls need um, the same sex parent to also teach them what it means to be that. Mm-hmm. Um, because women, women that become too enmeshed with their sons end up creating males that are love avoidant. Because they feel like they've been smothered or suffocated. And those are the guys that become the, quote, commitment phobes. Between love addiction, is it something seen much more in women than in men? Um, Not necessarily. I mean, probably, okay, yes, more so females show up as sex and love addicts or love addicts. Mm -hmm. And men just show up straight sex addicts. But there are many men who are also love addicts. Mm -hmm. Um, And even men that don't get into relationships, but even if they're seeking sex workers, a lot of times it's about getting validation from the sex worker more so than the sex itself. Mm. So um, yes, if a male was abandoned by his mother, then he's going to be love addicted to females. And if he was enmeshed by her, he will be love avoidant with females. Interesting. Interesting. So what's the difference then between love addiction and normal, healthy, lusty thoughts and relationships? And since this is an adult only show, you can just lay it out there. Cause I mean, sure. somebody might be sitting there going, I love sex. I like dating. Like, does that mean I'm a of love addict? Course. No, and the is no. <laughs> um, Look, falling in love is a whole neurochemical process, and Helen Fisher writes about this extensively in her work, certainly in Why We Love, that um, that obsessive thinking about someone um, is a result of you know high levels of dopamine because that person, that special someone, represents novelty. So our whole system's on fire, and we can't stop thinking about what he's doing, where he's going, if he's going to call me, what I should wear. Um, should I drive by his house? Shouldn't I? All of those obsessive thoughts are part of nature's way of getting us into relationship with another person. But at some point, um, that obsession starts to die down a little bit as we become more attached. And also, when you are not in a love-addicted bubble, when that guy says he's going to call you and he doesn't call you repeatedly, you see that as a red flag and think, uh-oh, he's not who he says he is. Or you find out that he doesn't have many friends and you think, that's kind of creepy. Um, the love addict says, that's kind of creepy, but I'm going to go out with him again anyway. Um, or he doesn't speak to, and he also doesn't speak to his family. I'm still going to go out with him. They keep hitting, they keep seeing the red flags and they keep pushing past it. And they're driving the obsession in their own head. It is not mutual. So when obsession and love are mutual, there's a give and take. Um, You're getting clear messages from the other person that they want you and you want them and you both want to be wanted. That's a green light for healthy, lusty um, relationships um, where you can't keep your hands off each other because you both want to be with each other. Mm. Um, I had talked with another guest of mine, Dr. Lindsay Gibson. She wrote a book on about emotionally immature parents and mm-hmm. kind of the how adults grow up in that household. And we had talked about healing fantasies because, like you said, creativity is uh, is important in fostering. But a child who has a very strong creative uh, mind, which is how I grew up, I mean, I... I created great fantasies 
and that allowed me to just tolerate just crap, you know, because of that piece of, of like, yeah, red flags, they, there was no such thing as a red flag in my life before, yeah. <laughs> you know, right. they were all just flags. <laughs> so well, it sounds like they were all green lights. Yeah, they were all green lights. I can go. make it work. Yeah. Yes, um, I can make it work. That That's actually a really good um, reminder that if you're saying I can make it work too many times, you're falling in love with potential or some fantasy or you're tolerating something um, that you might want to take a look at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, intensity is something that we talk about on my show with other guests and stuff and therapists, because if you had a particularly kind of emotionally numb or neglectful, then you seek intensity you know, that you, you value that. And I know for me, it was like the more exciting, the more challenging it was, the more uh-huh. resistance there was, the more I was into it. Um, is that a, is that a piece of love addiction as yeah. well? Yeah. Okay. It's a, mistaking intensity for intimacy mm-hmm. is what we talk about in the love addiction field. And that is um, a surefire um, red flag. Because when you're when a person is feeling you know dissociative or sort of dead at the core or dull internally, um, and they're always having to ratchet things up for drama to feel something, that's more of a, a sign that somebody should be looking at why their mood is so flat all the time or constricted or blunted in some way, and why they're always looking for someone else to make them feel good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, that's where therapy helps, for yeah, sure. Yeah, <laughs> therapy helps enormously there. And so do programs like Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, 12-step programs. Hmm. So you have a test on your website um, for love addiction. What are some of the things that somebody could be asking themselves if they're kind of getting through this going, wow, this sounds a little familiar. How do I start to check and see you know, if maybe I'm actually love addicted? Well, first of all, um, that test is an adaptation from... Um, uh, the SLAA website. So it's a good idea to uh, go to uh, slaa.org, I believe it is, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. Um, They have 40 questions. And so I just adapted 25 questions out of their 40. But with any addiction, the first question is, how unmanageable do you feel or does your life feel Um, because of your sexual or romantic behaviors. In other words, are you starting to have messes in your life? Do you ignore your friends and family and occupational needs um, and put uh, other people before those so, you know, you're not following through with things? And, you know, are you using that person to escape your problems in life? Uh, do they represent a, uh, yeah, kind of a fairy tale escape? Like, oh, when I'm with that person, I don't have to think about my life or attend to my life. And women talk about this a lot, about losing themselves to the relationship. Mm-hmm. If you are losing yourself to any relationship, that is an addiction. Because you could say that about drugs or alcohol um, or compulsive overeating or sex or anything else. So, that's something that should have people, you know, stopping and, and examining what they're doing. There's always the matter of, you know, doing more than you said you were going to do. Like you say, oh, I'm only going to talk to this person for 30 minutes and you're on the phone for two hours and now you've ignored your kids. Um, or trying to stop doing what you're doing repeatedly and you can't stop it. That's also another sign that there is some sort of problem that you're that you're not really looking at. Okay. And does and I guess the the clarity between the passion that you just talked about 
um, uh-huh. the big rush of dopamine and now you just can't keep your hands off each other. Um, you know, at what point do you go from that to where you're saying that like maybe there's too much attention into this or it's now starting to affect, um, cause I'm going to raise my hand. I'm guilty as charged of like meeting somebody connecting, going, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. And then sitting there about three days in going, you know what? I, I didn't do what I wanted to do today. I wanted to go do this, but instead I went and chased, you know, having fun for a while. Right. Um, you know, is there, there, obviously there's gotta be a balance and there's somewhere. Of, there should be a balance. Yeah. And the person that you're going out with should also have a life and say, you know what? That person should have boundaries. If they don't, if they're boundaryless, that's a red flag. Also, mm-hmm. if somebody is really interested in you and you set a boundary, they'll respect it. If you say, I've got a child at home um, or I can only do this on certain days because my ex has my kids on the other day, they'll respect that. And there's also something about letting the love and the relationship catch up to the sex mm-hmm. um, and the exuberance because we are exuberant seeking creatures. And so we'll get way, way ahead of ourselves about, um, oh my God, this person's so great and I can't wait to see them and all of that. But then you've got to stop and remind yourself, but wait a minute, I don't know this person yet. Um, so I need to slow it down and really get to know them and let the relationship catch up with all of those other neurochemicals that say, do it, go for it, have sex, um, don't go home, um, <laughs> and everything else that has us out of our minds. Right, right. Now, when do you think that a person might need to really start to get some help if they are beginning to suspect that they are consistently having some unhealthy relationships and they, you know, have these, um, these pieces of love addiction maybe laced in there. I mean, is self-help even a possibility or is therapy? And, and- no, I think self-help sometimes can um, sort of crack us open to the possibility of, you know, really having a problem and needing therapy. So I think when a person starts thinking they might have a problem, they probably have a problem mm-hmm. because if you're not thinking that on any given day about the things you're doing, then that you don't really have messes in your life. But uh, I guess also, you know, how lonely do you really feel or bad about yourself or frustrated that you keep trying to get into relationship and you're picking the wrong people all the time um, or disappointed you feel kind of in humanity in general because nothing ever works out for you. Um, I think that's a time to really consider uh, that you might have a problem and to Look at these different fellowships like SLAA, maybe go visit with a therapist, read a couple of books on the topic, um, and start to investigate what rings true for you and what doesn't. Because this is not a one-size-fits-all problem the way that um, alcoholism is. You know, you either drink or you don't drink. But in the world of sex and love, there's so many different um, iterations and gray areas that are dependent upon who the person is uniquely. So what may be true for me is not true for you or me or somebody else who's listening. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned about having like a constant, you know, history of bad relationships. Is that, is that a sign of just love addiction or because I think that, I think there's a lot of people out there that feel really frustrated that they haven't been able to find a partner um, or they're always dating and and feel, you know, that they just are never winning, you know, in that realm. Yeah. Well, I think that's a lot of things. First of all, love addiction is just sort of a popular culture phrase for attachment difficulties. 
um, and trauma typically underlies all of our attachment difficulties. So um, it can also include somebody who has a mood disorder, who's got anxiety or depression um, that they didn't realize they had. Um, there's also a major cultural piece to this whole thing about what it means to be female today or male um, and what it means to be aging and all the uh, messages that were fed about sex and love that makes it harder and harder to couple, I think. Mm. So it's not just, you know, somebody's psychology. It's also their neurobiology. It's also the social context in which we're living. So I would encourage people to give themselves a break and to practice, you know, self-compassion. Um, and don't make it about being too old or ugly or overweight or God knows what, mm-hmm. um, that it's really um, a challenge today because we're living in a time where there's so much busyness um, and people have so little time for sensuality and hanging out and visiting and getting to know each other. But mm-hmm. if it can't be done electronically in a minute, we just don't want to do it. Yeah. I, I have to say, though, I'm old school. Like, I sign up online, and then I'm not on there a month before I quit, because I just I just can't <laughs> do it. I told somebody the other day, I go, I'm just not built to pick a guy off a menu, you know, yeah, and decide so whether or not I'm going to like him, or, yeah. you know, and I just, so that world of it, as much as I've tried it, I just, I don't feel native to that environment. Right. Yeah. And if that is demoralizing, then it would be a good idea for people that are listening to get off it also. And I think it's much, much better, um, especially depending on what your cohort is, what decade you were born in, to meet people through other people. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell the person that does your hair, tell your you know trainer, tell everyone that you know that you're looking to meet someone. Um, and just keep putting it out there and be open and open-hearted in your dealings in the world. And you're generally likely to meet someone that way. Oh, that's great advice, actually, because I'm not the only person that I think feels frustrated with, you know, online dating. Not that it can't work, but, you not know, at all. yeah, I just, I feel like, you know, like I said, I, I don't like scrolling. I don't like mm. checking it out. Right. Um, not that everything's honest, <laughs> you know, yeah. out there. Um, and I also just sit there and think about of all the things I want to spend my time on, which this is that year taking a year off, you know, sitting there spending the time to search for a partner is just not one of my biggest priorities right now. Not that I don't feel lonely and, you know, want to have sex or any of those things. Sure. It's just, it's not like to, to spend the time that it actually takes to go through those processes. I just, you know, I just sit there and go, meh, I'd rather sit on the couch and watch a movie in my pajamas. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> it's good that you know yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it took some time to get there. And so I, I wanted to ask you, if somebody is just like any addiction, right? They've got the withdrawal process. And I'll tell you, the withdrawals for me, they hurt. They really did. Yeah, I'm not going to lie about it. I know people, you know, have commented on, you know, being, you know, me being a strong person, but I will tell you that it sucks in the early days. You know, what kind of advice do you have for somebody that, it, you know, is love addicted, who's going to go, I'm going to need to probably do something because cold turkey is no joke. Um, and so how does a love addict get through cold turkey? Well, that's one of the reasons I think 12-step programs are unique and essential because if you have a community of concern, if every time you want to call that toxic person, you instead call somebody in the program and say, hi, 
um, please stop me from getting my car in my pajamas and driving to his house. Um, you've got somebody to help you along the way that's going to hold your hand and talk you through it. So um, getting out of isolation and creating um, really a fortress around yourself that includes, you know, going to meetings, getting a sponsor, going to fellowship with other people, um, and doing things that are life affirming, that move you in the direction of where you want to go is far better than sitting at home, you know, drowning your tears and, you know, white knuckling it as it were to stay away from the phone. Mm-hmm. So getting help and having helpful people around you is, is important. And also being aware of your vulnerable times. Like for many females around their menstrual cycles, uh, that's when they're more inclined to cave and call that guy that they don't want to call. Mm-hmm. Um, and also holidays, certainly the time that we're entering into right now, um, it's important to have places to go Um, weekends, if weekends are vulnerable for you, make plans with girlfriends and family members and other people um, over the weekend. Join a club, you know, like if you like to hike, join a hiking club or go paint or do something that you've always wanted to do that you didn't do because you were so busy putting your time into that unavailable person. And that way, if you plan your weekends, um, you're less likely to kind of slip into despair. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And then also the block feature on your text, your Facebook, your Instagram. There's that too. Right. Right. Um, Okay. So let's take a moment and let's talk about you um, because you do so much out there. Even though you're located in Los Angeles, you've written several books. Mm -hmm. You have, um, you have this fabulous daily meditation that I get every day and I love it and I share it with other people. Um, And you've got other programs. I want everybody to know about what you do and how you can help anyone who's interested Um, because you don't only just cover love addiction. Like I said, you cover all kinds of sexual addictions and dysfunctions and sex therapy right. and things like that. So tell me about the Center for Healthy Sex and, sure. and Alex. Well, we have um, at Center for Healthy Sex two different programs, one for males and one for females, and they are 12-day um, intensive outpatient programs um, specifically for sex and love addiction, and they are gender-specific, so we don't commingle females and males. Um, and those programs are really powerful for people, um, especially who want to kind of jumpstart their recovery um, and don't have the time or the funds to go to a 45-day inpatient program. So you're, you're living in sober living. Um, you're coming to our offices every day, all day, and we're working with you. And we keep our intensive small. You know, it's anywhere from one to four people. So people are really getting individual attention um, to help them with their trauma, what led them to doing what they're doing, you know, to help them stopping and sending them home with tools and um, a good solid aftercare plan. Um, We also offer a women's love addiction weekend that we run about six times a year. Um, Our next one will be coming up in January. Um, I believe it's the weekend of January 25th, 6th, and 27th. A lot of women fly in for this workshop. Um, It's really fun, and we get a lot done in a short period of time. Um, And so you can look for that and the details of that on our website also. Um, And then this year um, in May and June, uh, the end of May and the beginning of June, I'm going to be at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, and I teach a women's sexuality workshop. So I do a weekend workshop, and I also do a week-long workshop where we really delve into 
um, sex and sexuality, what we like, what we don't like, the messages we got from childhood, um, our relationships with our mothers, our bodies, etc. So that's a very juicy, fun week, and it's in a really gorgeous setting. Um, so if anyone's inclined to that, uh, you can go to esalen.org and find the details about how to sign up for those workshops. Oh, awesome. And the website for everybody, I'll have the post um, or a link to it in the podcast notes. But if you're sitting there and you want to get it right now, it's centerforhealthysex.com. And, um, and then, like I said, the Mirror of Intimacy podcast that you also do. Uh-huh. Well, Mirror of Intimacy, as you said, is a book of daily uh, reflections, and it's a daily reader, and there's a topic every day on healthy sex and sexuality, um, and there are healthy sex acts every day that we suggest that you try, um, and that book is loved by thousands of people around the world, I have to say. We've got over 30,000 readers a day right now, so um, it's really a book that's taken on a life of its own, so I'm quite proud of it, and um, I do a monthly webinar on whatever the topic of the day is, the first Monday of the month. Um, and that is also on our website. And then I did start um, a video blog series where I interview people from all different uh, areas of psychology um, or sexuality. My last conversation was with a professional dominatrix who's male. I guess you don't call men dominatrixes. He's a professional dom. A dom. Um, <laughs> and so... Um, I've had conversations with him, with my friend and colleague, Catherine Woodward Thomas, who wrote Conscience Uncoupling, um, to, you know, uh, talking about clinical intuition with Terry Marks Tarlow. So it kind of runs the gamut of the people that show up to have these conversations with me. Awesome. Fabulous. Okay, Alex, is there something in here in this topic that we could um, still cover that I didn't get to or our conversation didn't? didn't get to? Um, I think the only other thing I would say is that um, shame is probably the biggest barrier to life. And when people are struggling with sex and love addiction, they feel so ashamed of themselves. They feel like losers, like they can't get it right. Like everyone else is in love and has a healthy relationship, but I don't. I mean, that's a prevailing feeling. And it's just heartbreaking because all of us have the right to love well and to be loved also, and to have someone that supports us in life, that really, really has our back in a secure way. And so if you're feeling like something's wrong with you, I really want to encourage people to know that that is just the shame that's holding them back, and to take the leap of making a call to a therapist, getting to a workshop, going to a 12-step meeting, and recognizing that, you know, if you don't do the thing that makes you feel bad today, then that's a victory. Um, and not to let shame stand in your way of having the life you imagine you could have. Um, that's that's a fantastic thing. Um, I had a thought, too, that, um, and that is, I don't think anybody would have looked at me as a young girl and saw a love-addicted girl because I didn't, I wasn't provocative. Um, I was pretty plain. <laughs> um, today, I think I'm more so than I was then. And I think I evolved into this woman that, you know, if you see pictures of me now and, and all of that, because I wanted to attract that. Right. But um, love addiction doesn't look a certain way, mm. right? That's, um, that's absolutely true. Um, neither does female sex addiction. People think... Oh, female sex and love addicts all look, you know, super beautiful or like models and they look like the average woman on an average street in the average town. 
there's no way to know when somebody is struggling with sex and love addiction mm. by looking at them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I've reflected a lot on this topic and about my, my preoccupation in, in the fact that you mentioned shame is a piece of that. And I, I'm really glad that you did say that because I felt um, in, I felt not good enough physically mm-hmm. when noticing that the prettier girls got the attention. And then in order to get a boyfriend, you had to be a pretty girl. Right. And I was preoccupied growing up with like my new year's resolution forever was I wanted to lose weight and be fitter. I wanted to be prettier. I wanted, and I spent a ton of money on makeup and you know, this is before there were makeup tutorials, you know, on YouTube. Right. Yeah. Um, but today I'm a woman that um, I can look at myself in the mirror and I love myself, but I've had breast implants done, a tummy tuck, uh, tattoos. I love my tattoos. Um, I've, uh, I have hair extensions. I tell some people know that, some people don't because I just didn't like my hair. I spent a great deal of time cultivating and nurturing a woman that I felt was physically beautiful in order to help me with getting relationships. Right. Yeah. And but, but um, has it helped you with your own self-esteem? Uh, yes, it has done that as well. Okay. Um, so I'm, I, I don't feel embarrassed, you know, as mm-hmm. much as I did, but before, um, I couldn't admit to anybody that I had altered myself and that I was doing it because I wanted to be seen. Like there was uh, yeah. a, there was real shame with that, but a part of this therapeutic process, this healing, this, you know, turning my life around in the last year and a half has gotten me to a place where I now I, I'm okay that people do know those things about me, but before I was too embarrassed to even admit it. Well, those are the cultural pressures I was talking about. We are pressured to look a certain way as women, and we are pressured to look a certain way um, because we're told that that's what men want, and certainly pornography tells us that. So that um, is something that everybody has to kind of come to terms with themselves um, when it comes to loving oneself and what you do have and being in gratitude that you're a healthy individual and um, you're lucky you got what you got. Mm-hmm. So that is the way I think that we perpetrate violence on ourselves. Uh, but there was one thing you said too that I think is worth noting is that any addiction, one of the premier hallmarks of any addiction is preoccupation. So living in your head and obsessing and thinking solely about one thing is also an indicator that you have a problem. So um, people should be mindful about that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Alex, this has been fantastic. I, again, I'm so grateful. I told you this before I started recording, you know, just how, um, how happy I am that you agreed to do this for the show. This is a, to me, it's an, obviously I, I pick topics that have some personal relevance to me mm-hmm. because I feel like if this is something that I've explored, it's something I've struggled with. It's something that I've learned about myself. I know there's other people that don't, you know, that would need to hear this or want to hear this. And so this is a conversation to open up some, hopefully some more tools and some more um, dialogue and a dictionary, you know, to be able to give people the words that they might need in order to be able to help themselves and identify something that they have going on in them. And so this was a, this was a big one. And for you to be able to do this with me, I'm, I'm really, I'm very grateful for that. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. And I'm grateful that you invited me because like you say, I think the more people hear this in different places, the more likely they are to get um, help. So thank you. Yes. Thank you for listening to One Broken Mom. You can find podcast notes on my website at amiquiricone.com. And there I'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email 
And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kurkoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.